Hello, this is Dr. Paul Sachs, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases. And on today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Brad Spellberg. He's Chief Medical Officer at the Los Angeles County University of Southern California Medical Center, and his primary area of interest is antibiotic resistance, a topic that has recently engendered a tremendous amount of attention at every level. Individual patients are interested, clinicians, researchers, institutions, governments, and beyond. So let's start out, Brad, by your telling us a bit about your background and how you got interested in this particular topic. I have been interested in infections since high school, actually. Taking AP Bio, I was fascinated by the immune system. And undergraduate and then in medical school, my interest in the immune system continued. And if you're interested in the immune system, you can either become an infectious disease doctor or you can be an allergist. And I wasn't interested in the allergy stuff. I was interested in the sort of struggle between host and microbe. And during training and as I began to join the faculty at post-fellowship, the thing that kept coming up over and over and over is that you know, we're running out of drugs. We're running out of antibiotics. And we're seeing infections that we can't treat, and that's 1934 medicine. We're not supposed to have that in the 21st century. That's sort of what lured me to this aspect of the field. Well, first, let me just say, I think you made the right choice of ID over allergy. <laughs> but, but, but second, ID doctors have been talking about the problem of resistance for decades. So what has changed? Why do you think that there's been so much attention paid recently, in the last couple of years in particular? Why are we getting traction on this issue now? It's a great question. The first thing that changed was that in the past, when resistance caught up to our armamentarium, industry would go back to the drawing board, and within a few years, they would come out with the next generation of gorillacillin. And so it's not that resistance emergence is new. It's not even necessarily that the rate of resistance emergence is new. It's that for several converging reasons, the pipeline is no longer capable of keeping up with the need. So the microbes have leapt ahead, and we have not been able to catch up in terms of new drugs coming along, nor have we in the last 80 years ever developed true stewardship such that we could prolong the useful lives of the drug we've had. We've never had to do that because we always got bailed out by the next generation of drug. That's the part of the equation that's changed. Yeah, I definitely hear you, and I experienced that, as did you. I can recall when the first carbapenem emerged on the scene when I was in medical school, but there haven't been a whole lot of carbapenems since then. So you think it's a pharmacoeconomic issue? You think it's that the pharmaceutical industry is distracted by other areas that maybe have a greater profit yield over time? Why hasn't drug development worked in this area? There's three converging reasons. They're all interdependent, but they're all separate. And the first is the reason you mentioned. Depending on whether you look at a European analysis from five years ago or a more recent U.S. analysis, at discovery, a new IV antibiotic has a net present value of somewhere between minus 50 and plus $50 million. If you look at the net present value of a arthritis drug at discovery, it's a plus $1 billion. So I think it's really important for people to understand for-profit companies are responsible to their shareholders. If you're a CFO or a CEO at one of these companies and you shunt a bunch of money in R&D into a low return on investment area, 
in lieu of higher return on investment areas, you're not going to be the CFO for very long. And it is no longer economically attractive to discover new antibiotics. Now, at the same time, exacerbating that problem, we've had about 140 systemic antibiotics approved for human use across the globe in the last 80 years. The stuff that's easy to discover, we've already discovered. The low-hanging fruit has been plucked. So it becomes more difficult scientifically, it's more expensive, and it takes longer to discover the next generation thing at the very same moment that people don't want to invest in the area. Yeah. The third issue is for complex statistical reasons, which if we want to cause your audience to have migraines, we could talk about, the FDA has been changing the rules about how clinical trials in this space are done. And as a result, those trials are much larger and much more expensive and enroll much more slowly than they ever have before. So that's really fascinating. You know, those three factors, you can easily see how they would contribute to a lack of motivation and ability to develop new antibiotics. Do you think that any of the actions taken by the collaboration between the government and the academic industry and the and industry itself are going to change that? Well, yeah. In fact, it's not all gloom and doom. I think that five years ago, the pipeline was literally on life support. There was barely anything meaningful in it. And the life support was coming from BARDA and NIAID. It was coming from government dollars in the form of public-private partnerships. That plus a lot of public outreach from a lot of people over the last decade Things actually in the pipeline are turning around. There's a lot more molecules in the pipeline today than there were five, 10 years ago. The counter why we should be guarded and not overly optimistic is almost all of the work is being done in small companies. And that has a major series of disadvantages. Small companies lack the diversity of expertise, the financial capital, the experience. And so they tend to become attached to one drug. And if that one drug goes under, the whole company goes under. So they don't shoot for the moon. They don't go after unmet need very well. They want to take a safe path. That's why we have had a flood of new MRSA skin drugs when we, in fact, don't need any more MRSA skin drugs at all. So, yes, the pipeline is turning around. There are molecules we need in development, but a lot of the work is being done in very inefficient ways leading to molecules that are really not going to help us take care of our patients. Interesting. So if you could have one do-over with regard to antibiotic utilization, what would it be? I'm going to start with an analogy that will lead back to a direct answer to your question. Rheumatologists don't allow everyone who's not a rheumatologist to prescribe the latest blah, 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 map that antagonizes TNF. <laughs> Oncologists don't let non-oncologists prescribe chemotherapy. The single biggest mistake that our specialty made over decades and decades is that we've allowed anyone to prescribe these drugs. And the perception has been that they're so safe and so effective, you don't need to be an expert in them. The result of that is a complete lack of control of use. And you know as well as I, Paul, when you're rounding on ID and you get consults and you go, I can't believe the drug's these folks are using. Well, if we had the ability to say, no, you don't get to use those drugs, only we can authorize the use of those drugs, we would have a much better ability to protect these drugs. Interesting concept. You can only imagine how 
hospitals respond and intensivists respond if we said to them, we're taking this out of your hands, <laughs> though it's a nice idea. That's exactly the point. It's too late. The cat's out of the bag. What we need to find now are strategies that move back in that direction without being as disruptive as it would be if we suddenly snapped our fingers. It's not possible to do that now. It's something that should have been done 50, 60 years ago. But there are ways that we could bridge back. For example, as we begin to approve new antibiotics that hit unmet need, particularly if they follow streamlined approval pathways that are being advocated for and have a limited label, those we should be pushing for, no, you need to be an ID doc or you need to be certified in ID pharma. You need to have some certification that shows that you know what you're doing because we simply can't afford to waste these drugs. These drugs are unique, not just amongst drugs, virtually all technologies. There's virtually no other technology you can think of that the more one person uses it, the less it is effective for everyone else in society. These drugs are a societal trust, and we need to begin to treat them as a precious, limited societal trust very differently than we have in the past. So this moves us in the direction of antibiotic stewardship, and that term is used a lot in ID, and we see it more and more. How would you define it? To me, it's making sure that the right drug is used at the right time for the right duration of therapy, and then people like to throw in the right dose. I think one of the saddest things for me is no one has ever gotten a group of people together to actually define what appropriate antibiotic use is. <laughs> we can't possibly steward appropriate use if we can't even agree on what it means. Well, related to stewardship is what the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services ruled last year. And they came out and said that such programs had to be in place or else hospitals couldn't participate in Medicare and Medicaid. In other words, they couldn't get paid. So that was that was very big news. Were you surprised they took that step or had you heard a, a preview it was coming? Yeah, I wasn't surprised that there has been ongoing dialogue at multiple levels. I think you have to hear credit the CDC for leading this charge because they have a lot of influence with CMS for some years leading up to that decision. I think that a number of people have been involved across a number of domains the resistance crisis began to get enough attention that it couldn't be ignored anymore. So we had mandatory infection prevention for decades. We never prevented any infection. <laughs> it wasn't until we began to publicly report infection rates and link those rates to reimbursement that teeth were put into infection prevention. Mm -hmm. Simply mandating that you have a program with no outcomes measures linked to the program is not going to make the programs effective. The fear I have is it's going to say at the societal level, at the congressional level, and at the level of CMS, oh, we fixed that. Oh, we checked the box. We're good. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's a good starting point. We need to make sure we message back to them. That's not enough. Yeah. We need outcomes measures. We need to show that we're using fewer antibiotics and using them more appropriately. I really enjoyed the piece you authored for OFID on how to sort of get the attention of hospital executives to support an antibiotic stewardship program. In fact, you know, whenever I use that term support, I always think it's a, it's a euphemism for just getting paid. And it's really about money. Um, how do you convince them 
that this activity, which does not yield any billable services, does not generate any RVUs, should be supported? That was exactly the question that uh, Dave Gilbert, John Bartlett, and I sat down to try to tackle. And it grew out of this fear that the CMS requirements were causing people to become complacent. Oh, the problem's been solved. We now have programs. But they're not going to actually work because people like me, CMOs or CFOs or CEOs who control budgets, are going to say, well, we're only going to spend enough money to check the box. The, re the regulatory requirement doesn't say we actually have to do anything. So one of the biggest misconceptions that I experience almost on a daily basis is that most providers really, truly do not understand how hospital financing works. So we'll get these business plans that, you know, propose an expansion of service XYZ because it's the right thing to do for that population of patients, and it's going to decrease length of stay, and therefore it's going to pay for itself. The vast majority of a hospital's budget is fixed. The only way shortening length of stay saves me money is if I can close one of my wards and lay off my staff. You know we're not going to do that. The way that shortening length of stay can work for return on investment is by increasing revenue. It's not cost savings. It's revenue generation. If I put more paying patients into the beds because there's more beds open, I'll increase revenue. You've got to convince people that A, it's important, but B, that I'm not going to have to gut the rest of the hospital to make it work. So I want to now ask you, what are your pet peeves? You must hear people saying things about antibiotic resistance and just shake your head that you can't believe that people still believe that. Give me your top three. Oh, boy. <laughs> the number one, I would say, because it's so pervasive, is this idea that if you want to prevent the emergence of resistance, the patient should continue taking the drug to complete the entire course, even after they feel better, <laughs> right? It was right. actually Lou Rice in 2008 at the IDSA annual meeting. He gave a keynote talk and pointed out how silly that idea was. When you try to track the urban legend back in time, it appears to result from a misunderstanding of prolonging therapy in the 40s to prevent relapses not to prevent emergence of resistance, but there was a reasonably high rate of relapse. Well, it turns out by strain typing, those probably weren't even relapses. They were reinfections with a new strain. That's a good one. And, you know, there are probably two or three exceptions. For serious invasive bacterial infections, shorter course therapy is just as effective and results in less selection for resistance. So we've got to get away from that. Let's see. Obviously, when you're talking to the lay public, the big concern is viral infections, the difference between a virus and a bacteria. I still think there's work to be done there. Yeah, that's a naughty one, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And then I guess the last one, I'm sure you've encountered this. You'll be on the phone with physicians, and they're scared, and they're nervous, and their patient isn't getting better, and they want pseudomonal coverage and VRE coverage and all this stuff, and you're like, but this is a community-onset infection. Why would this be pseudomonas? It's like, well, I don't think it's pseudomonas, but I need zosin. Well, 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 if it's not pseudomonas, why do you need zosin? Well, I need zosin because they're not getting better on ceftriaxone. Well, they're not getting better on ceftriaxone because they have appendicitis and you need to take them to the OR. This, this idea that broader means more effective is really a problem. Broader, of course, does not mean more effective. Ceftriaxone is just as effective as zosin for a susceptible E. coli, but that's not how people think about it. Mm -hmm. And we got to get people past that. I always like to tell our fellows that the macho equivalent of a surgeon 
to an ID doctor is, you know, they take the patient to surgery and we tell people to stop antibiotics. It takes a lot of courage. That's right. So um, listen, Brad, this has been terrific. I really enjoyed this conversation. I want to just give you a final chance to say any other words if you'd like. I think we do need to continue to be advocates for change. We're not where we need to be. There are societal and policy changes that need to be made around uh, how antibiotics are dealt with. And so I would just urge your listeners to remain active and stay engaged and speak up. Thanks very much, Brad. So this is Paul Sachs, and I've been discussing antibiotic resistance and antibiotic stewardship with Dr. Brad Spellberg. He, of course, is Chief Medical Officer at Los Angeles County University Southern California Medical Center and a widely respected expert in this field. Thanks very much for listening.